0: preacher this morning, Reverend Janicey Von Cook, comes to us from the First Presbyterian Church of Hilton Head, South Carolina, and she is here uh, to bring the word to us this morning. Jan is a native of Southern California, spent most of her life and ministry in San Diego County, is a graduate of San Francisco Theological Seminary, the class of 1997, where she has a diploma in spiritual formation. So it is with great joy that we welcome Reverend Jan Cook to our pulpit this morning and to the San Marino Community Church. Will you join me in giving her a warm welcome? Jan. Thank you, Jeff. I bring greetings to you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I want to say I really like the way this is set up. I almost believed that I could sing when I was sitting over here. When we were singing, I'm like, wait, I can sing. I didn't know I could sing. So I'd like to sit over here all the time if you don't mind. Will you please pray with me? generous and wonderful God, I thank you so very deeply for the path that you have made, for my life to intersect with this congregation, how blessed I am. And I pray, God, that today you might infuse the pale words of human speech with the extraordinary color and depth and richness of your spirit. Thank you for our story. Thank you for the scripture that reminds us of who we are, where we've been, and where we can go together. And I pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Life is hard I grew up in California and spent most of my childhood in the Imperial Valley, which is a small farming community 22 miles north of the Mexico border and 67 miles east of the Arizona border. We were among the families working the fields and crops up and down California, moving with each season. We were not called migrant workers, which, albeit humble, carries a sense of dignity in being acknowledged as hard-working. But we were instead labeled as fruit tramps, which carried with it another kind of stigma. Life can be hard. My dad worked hard physical labor all of his life. He worked the fields of California along with the rest of us. And in the off-season, we lived in New Mexico, where my dad worked in the coal mines. And then on to Texas, where he was a roughneck on oil rigs. But for my sister and myself, he was the most handsome, strongest man in the world. His arms were huge and muscular until the day he died. And as kids, I can remember we would squeal with delight as he would let each of us hang off one arm and then lift us. I mean, who can do that? On hot summer days, it was pretty routine for us that we would stop work in the fields and cool off by jumping into the canals that bordered each field, and deep and full to the brim with the moving irrigation water pumped up from the Colorado River. I was about six, and I didn't know how to swim, but I can tell you that I was pretty fearless because I had complete faith in a cheap plastic ring filled with air and painted with blue seahorses, and I just knew that that would keep me afloat. One day I threw this ring into the canal and then took a running jump and jumped in. But you know what happens when you jump into a ring and you keep your arms straight up above your head? You go straight through the ring. The problem was that um, exactly what I did. I went straight through the ring and, and shot to the bottom. And as I began gulping water and I had a moment of sheer terror and panic, I looked up. And I saw what looked like a giant's arm slicing through the water, grabbed me by the hair, and lifted me straight up out of the water. It all probably lasted about 45 seconds, but I have never forgotten a single second of it. At that moment, I was not capable of saving myself. That piece of flimsy plastic could not save me. What I needed was the strong arm of someone who loved me, who was watching out for me. What I needed was the strong arm of someone I could count on to protect me, even with their own life. Life is hard. It's hard today, and it was very hard for the first century church in Rome. In the final section of Romans 8, Paul cheers on the Christians in Rome. And he's reminding them that God's arms are stronger than any forces the world can conjure. In verse 31, he said, If God is for us, who, I ask you, who can be against us? And then he offers a word that speaks to the church for all times, including now, a word that reframes the embattled, sometimes wavering and discouraged narrative of the church, reminding us in verse 28, we know, we know that all things working together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. This is the scripture today, Romans 8:26 through 37. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray, As we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs and groanings too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a very large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers... Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Word of the Lord. You can see that this tone is emotional and celebratory all at the same time in a sacred kind of tension. In another place, Paul uses the imagery of a marathon runner who are at their halfway mark, and Paul reminds them and us that God has already run the race, already made it to the end, and guess what? God has won. With God's help, we are reminded that we can make it to the end of the race also. We can make it to the finish line, and we can join in God's victory, life, is hard. But here, Paul establishes a firm foundation that will help to empower and strengthen all of those who seek to follow Jesus, all of us, for the hard work ahead, because it is hard to be a Christian. It's demanding. It's difficult at times. Sometimes when we face a difficulty in our spiritual life, in our ordinary day life, We know that there is a time when we may be paying special attention to that, where others surround us and lift us up. But when life settles back to a new normal, when the crowds are gone and maybe the decorations are removed, we can even then proclaim defiantly somewhat that suffering in the name of Christ is not meaningless. As followers of Jesus, we are called not only to be glorified with Christ, but also to suffer with Christ. What does that mean, to suffer with Christ? I think it's important when we think about suffering with Christ that we understand what Christ suffered. Christ's suffering was for us, Christ's suffering was not primarily for himself, he suffered for the broken. He suffered for the needy. He suffered for all of us kids who would run and jump into the deep end and rely on anything else but a strong arm to reach out and grab us. Living as Christians in a world that largely denies the reality and power of God will likely bring some suffering to believers. We suffer not only from an opinion but we suffer because of not listening of ears that will not hear of hearts that are made of stone what breaks god's heart begins to break ours but on the cross jesus showed us demonstrated for us that suffering is no longer meaningless and it can be used for god's purposes In Jesus' case, we see straight out that his suffering, his willingness to suffer for the world brought victory over death as well as new life, hope, and possibility. We Christians, I think, understandably struggle with the amount of suffering and pain in the world. We do. We are acutely aware of and we're sensitive to it. We experience it in our lives and in our communities and in the people we are called not only to walk alongside, but to love. We read about it, hear about it, see it every day. We could do it 24-7 if we wanted to. It's available to us. The violence and the brutality and the famine, all of them going on. And I think it's easy to feel overwhelmed and hopeless by all of this suffering. And our understandable response at times is, where is God? But let me tell you something. If we don't ask that question, there are those who have no relationship with God who will ask that question of us. Just as they walked by when Jesus was hanging on a cross and said, "Where where are the angels now? Where's your God? We're asked, where's your God in the face of all of this? I would be surprised if not every single one of you has been asked that question at some point in your life. Where is God? It's hard to understand why God allows suffering. And it's easy to believe that suffering indicates God's absence rather than presence. So the question then is, does the pain in our world mean that God is somehow absent or uninvolved? In the spirit of Romans 8, Paul would answer this with a resounding, by no means. How is that possible? Well, for one thing, we have to understand that the suffering we and our world experienced is caused largely by sin, by humankind's own doing. Greed and hate and bigotry make up so much and are at the root of so much suffering in the world this sense of of scarcity that no matter how much we have, it won't be enough, so we can't share it. All of these pervasive powers that work to destroy and undermine the things and creatures of God and the ordered plan that God has so lovingly and imaginatively created. Yes, it's absolutely true that God is stronger than sin. We know that. We believe that. We count on it. But God, in providing human free will, has made a choice to restrain his power, and sin continues as an active reality in our lives. We have the free will to choose. But even so, through Christ's death and resurrection, suffering is no longer automatically passed on, bringing endless cycles. Of destruction and pain we can stop we can be made brand new we can be transformed we can choose life not death as God says in Deuteronomy choose life not death and we have to think about what kills our souls Christ absorbs and transforms our suffering Through Christ, the struggles that we face, every single struggle that we face, that we have faced, and that we will face, can be redeemed and transformed. They can be transformed into endurance and resilience and character. They can be redeemed and transformed into tireless efforts on behalf of others. And in this, we hear an echo from Genesis 20, 50. When Joseph, who had been betrayed by his family and sold into slavery, confronts his brothers as ruler of the land where they had come begging for help, and Joseph says to his brothers as they are on their knees begging for his forgiveness, says, don't you see, you planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for my good. As you see all around you right now, life for many people, they did not intend goodwill for Joseph, but God redeemed their intention, and good things came. God, I believe, can redeem our suffering by using what is meant to harm us, to bring us to spiritual maturity and providing us with the desire for purpose, and thus our suffering becomes food for the world. And there is an inclination, I think, by many of us to Lose the, the uh, fine, pure sh- stream of what that says. It's important to not leave this place hearing me say, God gives you these things in your life so that you can be matured. God uh, tests you in these ways. Because there is such a ramification and such a sense of Brutality in so many of those things. And if you ask parents of a child who has died, they can testify to that. It's important to remember that God will redeem and transform hurt and suffering and struggles. When I was a chaplain at a trauma center in San Diego, one of the things that they trained us to do was to be an uh, organ donor requester which means that when someone came in and they were deemed uh, non-viable on life support, but really with no chance of recovery, they were uh, all the brain waves were gone, that we would approach the family and then ask for if they would donate their organs. Now, I went to the training, and it was fascinating. I declined to be a requester simply because I felt that I would be giving up my ability to be a chaplain and a spiritual presence by having a, by having another agenda, but it was very valuable training and the one thing I learned from that training was at first it would seem very um, intimidating wouldn't it wouldn't you feel like you were being so intrusive and wouldn 't it feel like it would you might be so uh, brutal and cold by asking that, but every family to, the, to a letter said that they were so grateful that they were asked that something good could come out of this tragic circumstance that they had, that there would be something that would be redeemed about this moment, and they were anxious for that. We were anxious for things not to just be purposeless and meaningless. The Mothers Against Drunk Driving woman, early in her endeavors, her daughter was killed by a drunk driver on her way home. And she established that. And she has has educated and probably saved thousands and thousands of young lives and given comfort to thousands also. And she was asked at one point, Do you think that God gave this trauma to you so that you could do all the good that you've done? And she said, that's not really how I see God, and I'll tell you this, she said, if I could have one day back with my daughter and feel her arms around my neck and hear her say I love you, if I could have one moment to look into her face and say I love you back, I would give all the good I've done away. isn't that true? Of course. But God can redeem those things that we struggle with. It's important to know that the text does not say that all things are good and all suffering is good. But what it does say is that God can make everything count. Everything in our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Make it all count for good In the final verse of chapter 8, Paul rhetorically uses a question-and-answer format to make a point. The answers to his questions are short and obvious. And they create a growing sense of confidence and energy. You'll see them over and over again. And he uses a conjunction like or, 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 or to build that energy and to build that confidence By verse 35, Paul asks, who will separate us from the love of God? And while the answer is clearly no one, Paul seizes that opportunity to offer one of his incredible laundry lists. The laundry list of, will this, will this, will that, will this. And And you have to know about Paul, his laundry lists are never comprehensive. They're just some things that he thought of. So you can insert your own circumstance right there. And you said, will this? Will this thing that I've done? Will this thing that she's done? Will this thing that's happened? Will this separate us from the love of Christ? And all of them, except for the sword, were faced by Paul. And Paul then continues. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he provides another list. This one is even more daunting than the first. It's a list of things that cannot separate us from God's love. Listen to this list. Death. Rulers. Things to come. No need to worry about the future. Powers. Things you don't have control over. And then he says this, which pretty much includes everything. And anything else in all of creation. And we become aware that this is actually a list of all the things that human beings fear the most. Aren't they? All the things that we fear the most, Paul says, there's no need to fear. Poetically and triumphantly, Paul asserts confidence. The knowledge and the experience and the trust in God's love can bring Jesus' followers That incredible, mysterious peace. Mysterious because it comes at the most unbelievable moments. The deepest moment of tragedy, the greatest height of anxiety. A peace that surpasses all understanding and makes no sense in the midst of what we are experiencing. What would it mean to live without fear? That Paul has told us there's nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. If God's promises are true, and if Paul is correct, then what that means is that we will never, ever be separated from God's companionship and community. God will always have the last word. I find great comfort in that. I find great comfort in when I watch the news and I see the most horrendous story and in my mind I think, that's not the last word. When I see what we do to each other, what we're doing to each other, I say, but that's not the last word. It's incredible to me that with the visit of the Pope, the news media, the clamoring, the thousands, and what they are clamoring for is simply a man who is actually just talking about the teachings of Jesus. Why is it that they're hearing it in a new way? It tells me that there are thousands and thousands waiting to hear it. Life is hard. And in that hardship, we are called, each of us, you and me, our children and our children's children, We are called to action in participating in God's work, always. We're called to reach out to the world that God so loved, the world far outside of our church doors, the world that may not know the story of Jesus and may not know of God's unconditional love for every person. We're called to be an active workers, participants. We're called to be fruit tramps. For the fruit of the Spirit. And I tell you, my friends, there is no way that we can stand on the shore at a distance from everybody who's drowning and simply toss them a flimsy plastic ring filled with air, painted blue with seahorses, and wish them well. Rather, it's very important When they look up to see a very strong, well-muscled arm reaching out to them. And that muscled arm is the arm of God muscled with power over death and power over anything that separates us from the life abundant that God offers. And we have that. Each of us have that strong arm to reach out and to save So there is no reason to fear. Why? Because we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Amen.